Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? The virus is spreading. You must stay at home. Europe is now coming to their support. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and this is the last of our extra editions, for the moment anyway, devoted to Europe's response to the coronavirus. We know the crisis is far from over and some of the most serious repercussions are almost certainly still to come. But with much of Europe now relaxing lockdown measures and getting back to some kind of normality, at least for now, we're going to try to do the same. We'll be concentrating all of our efforts on our regular Thursday episode of EU Confidential, which will of course also be very focused on this crisis for the foreseeable future. But before we do that, we want to use this episode to look back at what we've learned during these last few months, when the world suddenly and dramatically changed. To look at how we got here, to see if we can identify some key themes in Europe's handling of this crisis. And to help us do that, our producer, Christina Gonzalez, has gone through all the material we've gathered for our coronavirus podcasts. So we'll have some excerpts from interviews, including some we haven't used before, as well as news clips. And we'll also give you a peek behind the scenes of how we made these episodes in the midst of lockdown. The story starts for us, anyway, in late February, when the coronavirus was just starting to make its way up the political agenda. And our senior health reporter, Sarah Wheaton, suggested she come on the podcast to talk about it. And of course, we took her up on that offer. Okay, so yeah, try and talk naturally. All right, yeah, it's a crazy day. Yeah. But at that point, it wasn't clear how big a threat coronavirus was going to be to Europe or to all of us individually. Okay, Sarah, so am I going to get coronavirus? I can't rule it out for you, Andrew. I'm sorry. Um, It kind of depends on where you are and where you might be going and who you hang out with. Um, At that time, only a small cluster of Italian towns had been ordered to lock down. But we'd later come to learn this was actually a key moment for Europe. I interviewed Andrea Ammon, the the head of the European Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, which is supposed to be monitoring these crises throughout the bloc. Um, She said that obviously Italy's shutdowns and problems were a major source of concern, but the thinking in the ECDC was, okay, they're taking the steps to control it. So 
this doesn't call for kind of widespread concern yet. Um, but then, um, uh, so Italy, Italy locked down its northern towns um, in late February over a weekend. But then it was that next weekend when everybody was coming home from their carnival festivals, from their ski holidays. And that's what she said really spread it around the block. And that's when she realized that Europe was not going to be able to contain this virus to just a few places, that it really was going to spread and it was now going to require... However, not many people, including health officials or politicians, realised that at the time. Ministers generally rejected the idea of closing borders or locking down countries. Much of the focus of Europe's political leaders was elsewhere. It's easy to forget now, but there were huge fears of a big new migration crisis at the Greek-Turkish border, after more than 30 Turkish soldiers were killed in Syria. No man's land between Greece and Turkey. Greek police deploy water cannon to drive back people trying to cross the border into the EU. Athens says it has blocked around 10,000 migrants who are trying to leave Turkey after President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said his country had opened the gates to Europe. The leaders of the EU's institutions even went to the border to express support for Greece. I thank Greece for being our European aspida in these times. Translate aspida as shield. And when Commission President Ursula von der Leyen held a press conference to mark the first hundred days of her commission. Yes, thank you so much. Good morning to all of you. Um, the College of Commissioner has taken office now um, since 100 days. Migration was the main topic, along with her plans for a new Green Deal and digital transformation. When uh, I started 100 days ago, there were many, many different questions and many difficult issues on the agenda, but the EU-Turkey statement was not under question. And in all my speeches, I said that The coronavirus was climbing the European political agenda, but it wasn't at the top, and the response wasn't very European. On Friday, February 28th, Italy activated the EU's civil protection mechanism – that's a scheme that allows EU members to ask others for help with an emergency. Italy asked for face masks and other personal protective equipment. But that request was met with silence from the rest of the EU. Meanwhile, countries such as France and Germany were taking control of their country's own protective equipment or banning it from export. But Italy was suffering and the whole country went into lockdown. Italy has expanded its response to the coronavirus by locking down the entire country. Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte says that as of this morning, travel restrictions will apply to the whole of Italy and not just the north as before. More than nine Now, at that time, those measures seemed quite extraordinary. We brought in our Italy correspondent, Silvia Shirili Borelli, to give us a sense of what life was like, little knowing that the rest of us in Europe and the world would soon find ourselves in a very similar situation. So maybe, Sylvia, just, just start by telling us how life has changed since the lockdown order came. In short, uh, it's a completely different life. Um, Rome, just like many other parts of Italy, has turned into a ghost town. Um, I have a toddler and we're stuck at home. Um, we're being advised against going to the playground, but... 
literally it's it's just completely different even going to the supermarket you have to stand in a queue um at a one meter distance from each other and we're let in one at a time in big supermarkets with people actually checking that there's not more than one person inside the premise and we're talking about large supermarkets not small grocery shops While there was no lockdown generally here in Brussels at that time, many employers were telling employees they could work from home. And that's what many of us at Politico started to do. And as the crisis became more acute, we also decided to launch these extra editions of the podcast. Welcome to a special edition of Politico's EU Confidential podcast, focusing on the coronavirus across Europe. It's an incredibly dramatic moment. Emmanuel Macron has just declared that we're at war with the virus and he and Angela Merkel have both announced big curbs on normal life today in the EU's biggest countries. And you heard a moment That episode was partially recorded in the office while trying to observe some social distancing because most of our equipment was still there. Well, Christina should arrange you as you as she sees fit, but probably a bit closer to the microphone would be. Yeah, well, that is the tricky bit, social distancing. Much as I love to see you, uh, your health comes first. But since then, like I guess almost all of you, we've been working remotely, putting these podcasts together using Zoom, Slack, WhatsApp and FaceTime to connect spare rooms, kitchen tables and other makeshift offices across Brussels and beyond, with all the possibilities and the frustrations that that brings One of the early themes of this crisis was EU institutions looking flat-footed or deciding the best course of action was to get out of the way of national governments who were pumping billions into their economies and shutting down borders. But as the crisis wore on, Brussels tried to push back. Ilva Johansson, the European Commissioner for Home Affairs, came on the podcast to talk about those border closures. She insisted things were getting better. And, she suggested, governments had acted a bit like panic-buying hoarders in the early days of the crisis. But, she said, they were now learning their lesson. If I just want to make some comment, I think that sometimes your first reaction is to, you know, trying to uh, save yourself. Uh, You can see it on an individual basis where people go to shops and buy toilet paper and and pasta. But after a while you realise this is not what I need. What I need is good neighbours so that they can help me when I'm in in trouble or if I need somebody to help me to go to the shop uh, and do things like uh, like that. And I think this is the same reaction we see among member states. Uh, of course, there's always new problems popping up and we are dealing with them, but this is not this thing that keeps me awake uh, during night, I must say. Later in the week, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen took to the floor of the European Parliament and she didn't hold back about a lack of European solidarity. The story from the last few weeks is partly a painful one to tell. When Europe really needed to be there for each other, too many initially looked out for themselves. When Europe really needed an all-for-one spirit, too many initially gave an only-for-me response. And when Europe really needed to prove that this is not only a fair weather union, too many 
initially refused to share their umbrella. But it was not long before some felt the consequences of their own uncoordinated action. Away from the politics, we wanted to hear from experts. So, the next week we turned to Hermann Hoosens, a professor of microbiology from Belgium and the coordinator of an EU group studying how to combat the virus. The full interview is still worth a listen, but here are two points that particularly stood out. Hoosens started by addressing the question of what he would have done differently, and he said he would have gone back to the second half of January and done the following. I would have said, okay, this is a virus that causes a respiratory infection very similar to flu. You cannot differentiate the symptoms caused by the flu virus from the symptoms caused by this coronavirus. So let's then test all patients where we test for the influenza virus, also for the coronavirus. If we would have done that, we would have realized that this virus was already spreading in Europe the second half of January. And I think we would have realized that we need to respond more rapidly and put people in quarantine when they tested positive. And that's the mistake that we have made. The virus was spreading under our nose without realizing that actually this virus was spreading in several countries because I'm convinced that in Italy the virus was already spreading the second half of January and uh, later on and also in other countries, but we simply didn't test. So that has been, I think, a major mistake that was made. Nobody to be blamed for, a lesson to be learned. But I think it was a major mistake that we made uh, when this virus appeared in Europe. And just in general, right now, we've looked, we've kind of looked back. But right now, do you think now all the appropriate measures are being taken? Or do you still look around and think there's something that we're not doing that we really should be doing right now? Politicians are having a hard time uh, because they need to base their decision on scientific evidence. And we don't always have that scientific evidence. I looked at communication of experts during the Mexican flu. And one thing that I learned from this was that you need to be honest as an expert. If you know what the answer is based on scientific evidence, you should give the answer. If you don't know what the answer is, because this scientific evidence is basically not there, you should also say that. But what you should not do is to minimize the threat if you don't have the evidence. You see what I mean? And that's oh. another mistake that I think many people made in Europe, also experts made in Europe, by minimizing the threat because simply they didn't have the evidence to assess how big the threat was. Right, so they took a kind of absence of, of evidence as evidence of absence, right, which was not the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. That episode aired at the end of March. But by the beginning of April, this wasn't just a big public health story, it was also a huge economic story, as companies and entire countries ground to a halt. Another European commissioner joined us on the podcast, Nicholas Schmidt, who's in charge of jobs and social rights, and he revealed plans for a €100 billion scheme called SURE to try to help governments keep people in jobs. Well, we are working on an emergency unemployment uh, a mechanism or reinsurance mechanism. We are working very hard on it and I hope that we can come up with a, a proposal soon. I know that the uh, president of the commission is very much committed to it too. So we are working on it and I think we have to 
bring up uh, some um, instrument first because we are we are absolutely convinced that this uh, unemployment or Uh, short-time work is essential, that we have to show some solidarity or better solidarity in this context, and therefore this instrument uh, is needed. Meanwhile, European life had been transformed in a way that would have been unimaginable just a couple of months earlier, as I recounted on that same episode of the podcast to our panel. It is a bit of a police state out there at the moment. I mean, I was in a park and there was a Park ranger checking whether two women who were exercising together lived in the same household. I heard a story the other day about a guy who took his young son uh, to a park, drove to the park with the uh, little boy's bike, and then was then stopped by the police when he got out of the car and told that this was not an essential journey and he was fined. And so I just wonder if, if any of you guys have heard exactly... The following week, we turn to another expert, someone whose job it is to advise and teach on how to prepare for a big emergency like this. Professor David Alexander of University College London. It's fair to say he was not hugely impressed by the response so far. Well, one thing I teach is that in emergency planning and management, we've got three main ingredients. We've got plans, procedures and improvisation. Because every emergency is different to every other, we cannot rule out improvisation. But what we have to do is to reduce it to a necessary minimum because unwarranted improvisation is tantamount to negligence. In other words, if we're struggling to find equipment that we didn't realize we ought to have, but we could have known that, then we're wasting time. We're probably also wasting money and other resources. So unfortunately, much of that was not really done or rather it was not followed through. Therefore, what we're seeing now generally with respect to sourcing equipment such as masks, ventilators and so on, with respect to setting up systems and so on, with respect to dealing with the economy is frantic improvisation. And by the way, if you think the coronavirus is bad, the professor also came out of left field with another possible catastrophe that the planet could face at some point. Um, One thing I'd like to mention is space weather. Now, you may ask, well, what has this got to do with it? And Space weather is simply the effect of a coronal mass ejection or a sunspot, if you like. Um, In 1859, there was an event called the Carrington event because an astronomer, amateur astronomer called Richard Carrington was looking at the sun. Well, he wasn't directly looking, but he had his telescope trained on the sun and a piece of paper. He was eating breakfast. He saw the most amazing sunspots. Within a day, the plasma wave had arrived. The only real electrical technology was the telegraph. You could send a telegraph message without turning it on, although you risk getting an electric shock if you tried to do so. The question is, what would happen now if a Carrington event hit the earth? And the answer is it would do trillions of dollars of damage, trillions. It would upset um, global navigation systems. A whole range of different things would occur. Um, Because we have become so dependent on electronic networks, bearing in mind also that transformers would burn out, and I don't mean small transformers, but ones the size of the room I'm sitting in or larger would burn out. They take a year to manufacture, deliver and install, by the way. Um, We could find loss of electricity lasting for years, damage to satellites, and it has already occurred on occasion, 
um, being widespread, or all sorts of other effects. How prepared, therefore, are we for this, given dependency on electronic systems? So I think the one thing we have to do after, after COVID is to review our dependency on technology and on different systems. So let's just hope the space weather holds fair for a long time to come. Meanwhile, both the UK and the EU have continued to struggle to get a grip on this crisis. Boris Johnson tested positive for the coronavirus, was eventually hospitalised and then moved into intensive care. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been admitted to intensive care with those persistent symptoms of coronavirus. So just breaking news coming into us within the past few seconds. And the European Commission was not finding it easy to seize the initiative. It announced that it would unveil a roadmap for countries looking to ease their lockdowns. The college meeting will focus on the roadmap to exit, which will be adopted tomorrow. The college will also hold... But that announcement was swiftly postponed after an angry reaction from member countries who thought it would send the wrong message at the wrong time. At the beginning of April, we at Politico published a piece by Sarah Wheaton and David Herzenhorn drawing on reporting from across our newsroom. The headline was How Europe Failed the Coronavirus Test. And Sarah walked us through some of the key points of that story. The reality is that that what the European Union was sort of offering, whether we're talking about uh, capital's responses or Brussels' response, regardless of whether they were working together or not, it was basically completely inadequate to respond to this um, huge pandemic. There was a combination of inadequate warnings from some scientists who are supposed to warn them in the European Union, such as the European Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Meanwhile, there had been many scientists who'd been arguing for about a decade now that the world is due for a major pandemic like this. So those warnings were ignored. And then even when people did start to register how big a problem this is, European countries didn't work together. So yeah, it's again, it's a, it's a big, complicated story with no kind of one bad guy or or person that we can say really screwed up, but just kind of many different things that could go wrong did. Over the course of the last three months, we've brought you insights from inside the European Commission and the European Parliament and from politics across Europe. We've spoken to experts in everything from epidemiology through economics to artificial intelligence. And we've brought you key moments such as Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron jointly announcing a proposal for a 500 billion euro recovery fund. Präsentieren wir sozusagen die kurze Antwort auf die Krise. Lange Antworten werden diskutiert werden müssen, denn Europa muss weiterentwickelt werden. Et on assume les transferts parce que de fait, la clé de répartition ne sera pas une clé nationale où chacun regarde le juste retour, ce qui est aussi un vrai changement de philosophie, mais où nous assumons. We've also tried to mix in a little bit of levity. Right, people, listen up. It's a f- But before we wrap up these special episodes, let's bring back Sarah, our senior health reporter, to take stock and give us some final thoughts. Hi, Sarah. Hey. 
as I say, you know, that's that's our sort of shot at trying to sum up uh, the past few months, which have really been, I mean, quite literally incredible, you know, things that you would not have believed would have been possible not so long ago. Sort of looking back at it yourself, Sarah, having covered it since the very beginning, you know, can you identify certain phases uh, that we've kind of gone through in this story so far? And, and you know, where might we be going next? Well, one, one thing that just has sort of stuck in my head is it's almost like we're going through five stages, the five stages of grief. Officially, there are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And and it's pretty clear that the world uh, started off in denial, uh, even when Northern Italy uh, started locking down towns in late February, early March, there still was just this thinking everywhere else, even in bordering countries that I'm glad they're doing it, but it's not going to happen here. And we have kind of of gone through with with lots of negotiations about the extent of lockdowns and and whether people can go out and exercise um, countries coordinating or in many cases early on failing to coordinate on sharing sharing medical supplies and then figuring out how they were going to actually do that. We've seen governments really be effective or ineffective based on the level of trust that their citizens have in them. And now I feel like we kind of veer back and forth between depression and acceptance. Even so, I was just going to say, even now that we're going back to this kind of here in in Belgium anyway, in Brussels, a sort of semi-normal where the shops are open again and that kind of thing, it still doesn't feel anything remotely like normal. And in some ways, that's harder to deal with, right? It's almost like one extreme or the other sort of lockdown, obviously, over a long term would not have been easy to deal with. But if that's a temporary thing, you can get your head around it. The idea that you might have this much longer period of something in between, you know, probably psychologically is quite difficult to deal with. In public health and more broadly, what are, what are the big questions that, that we still have to try and grapple with or are likely to have to grapple with in the months or maybe years ahead? Well, we have to see if there is a second wave. And many experts actually predict that the second wave could be worse. Um, It was sort of understandable when there weren't enough hospital beds and ventilators when this virus was a huge surprise. But come the fall, politically, there's just really no excuse for for not having enough health system capacity. The other the other question that that many policymakers are grappling with on an immediate basis is um, whether to reopen schools. And in general, it seems like kids certainly don't get very sick from the coronavirus. And, and there's sort of mixed evidence about the extent to which they to which they spread it. But it seems maybe not so bad. But at the same time, we're hearing these very rare but dramatic reports of, of kids having um, this sort of very extreme immune response called Kawasaki syndrome that can either um, put them in the hospital or sometimes kill them. And if you're a parent, you're like, well, yeah, okay, it's only going to happen to, you know, one in 100,000 kids, but like, I don't want that to be my, my kid to be the one. And so convincing parents to send their kids back to school may may be a challenge. And that would be sort of an interesting return because one of the things that that we wrote about in our sort of um, look back at the at the initial EU response was how the initial impulse of many policymakers was actually to be reassuring and say, hey, everybody, don't panic. 
And in retrospect, that didn't seem like great advice, but we may actually see politicians going back to the don't panic thing, saying like, don't panic, it's okay to send your kids back to school. Don't panic, it's okay to to grow, go to the store or maybe even at some point telling people it's okay to get on a plane or get on a, on a subway train because that will be needed. Um, the other thing in the longer term, that's a balance that policymakers need to be thinking about now is everybody's, many, I should say, not everybody, many are very eager for a vaccine that's seen as really our only hope for going back to the old normal, not even the new normal. Um, and so there's a lot of, of talk on both sides of the Atlantic about how we're really rushing to like fast track this and get it out as soon as possible. But there's also a lot of concern that that's going to fuel anti-vax sentiment, people saying, look, you're not really doing the amount of testing that that you should be doing. I don't feel confident about this. I heard there was actually a poll out of the United States over the weekend showing that 25% of people at this point would not want to get a coronavirus vaccine, even if it were available. And that pretty much, that that's a high enough proportion that it would render uh, herd immunity impossible. So even now, politicians need to be thinking about the type of rhetoric that they use when talking about a vaccine. Mm. And what about, uh, you mentioned that initial uh, European response, which, you know, was not particularly European, certainly not very joined up. You know, any sign that there's been a kind of learning moment for the EU and how governments coordinate here? I think early on it was sort of seen as like, Germany versus France or, or, you know, Italy versus Spain or whatever. And, and people within Europe were, were fighting over the same pile of supplies. But Trump has actually emerged as this unifier. And there was a moment uh, in March where there was a rumor that went out that um, Trump was trying to secure exclusive uh, rights for Americans to an experimental vaccine being made by a German biotech company. And suddenly that seemed to sort of wake up European capitals that like other EU capitals are not the threat, but Washington is the threat. And so now there have been all these displays of European unity, but it's almost in contrast to Trump. And that unity hasn't even extended beyond Europe and and the European Commission and, and people like Macron and Merkel have really spearheaded these uh, events that are highlighting global solidarity, highlighting that a vaccine should be made available, not just in the probably rich Western country where it's produced, or China, but should be made available throughout the world. And so I think actually Trump has been sort of a a convenient foil for uh, European leaders on this question. Yeah, interesting. Great. Well, I think that probably uh, covers it for now. Um, Thanks, Sarah, not just for your time today, but over this entire series. And we'll be definitely continuing to call on you on our regular editions of the podcast on Thursday. So thanks to you and the whole health team. It's been great having you on board. Thanks, guys. We'll be back with the next one of those on Thursday. Be sure to subscribe to this feed so you don't miss it. And if you've enjoyed these extra editions, we'd appreciate if you'd rate us by clicking some stars and leave a review. You're also welcome to email us your feedback anytime. We appreciate everyone who's got in touch during this series. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. So we'll be back on Thursday. A special thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.